the week the Jews and others who do not understand are keeping the Passover. And then they'll have Easter too comes tomorrow morning if they want to keep that. But uh, I think Passover is still a month away. And I believe that that will become evident. Anyway, we sang today the first uh, hymn of the of the service, Psalm 102. A uh, very uh, interesting psalm there. Uh, the hymn itself does not bring out a couple of things in there, and it might be a good place to start today. Uh, let's go to Psalm 102. <clears throat> It's talking about praying and asking God to hear our prayer and to not hide His face from us in a time of trouble. And we have been in a time of trouble now for some time where He has been hiding His face from us. So this is a prayer of deliverance from that. And He goes on to say how He's having troubles and His heart is withered like grass and I forget to eat my bread and uh, he he groans and like a pelican in the wilderness and so on. So it, it's depicting a, a time of trouble and despair and difficulty such as we have. Let's go on down to verse 12. But you, O Eternal, shall endure forever and your remembrance unto all generations. You shall arise. That sounds like the language of Zechariah 2. Exactly, where he'll rise to do his work, and Isaiah as well. You'll arise and have mercy upon Zion for the time to favor her. Yes, the set time is come. So, when we're in a period of time here at the end where we're asking God's deliverance and we're declining in all, most of us at death's door, if you will, uh, he says he'll rise and that he will have mercy on Zion and that it is a set time. This is a prophetic passage here. For your servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. It needs built back. In other words, it's just piles of rocks laying on the ground and dust. I remember years ago when I first visited Zion in 96 that I picked up a few pebbles and some of the dust in my hand recognizing the importance of that place. And to me, just the stone from Zion and, and the dust was precious. I wasn't thinking of this verse. probably wasn't even really aware of it. But I remember doing that. I won't say whether I took a little stone or two with me because you don't take those out of the park. But I favored those. They were precious to me with the new knowledge I had of the importance of that place. So it says then, So the heathen shall fear the name of the Eternal and all the kings of the earth your glory. That tells you right there that it wasn't anything that happened in David's time. Uh, all flesh and all the heathen have not come to that point yet where they all fear the eternal. In fact, most of them don't fear God much at all if they believe in Him. Uh, so that cognizance is not in their thinking at all. He says, 
that they will fear him when the Eternal shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. Now, there are two levels of that. He's going to come back to his people in, in uh, the end time here, he says, and dwell with them in Isaiah 7 and Zechariah 2 and other places. And then he will appear in his absolute glory when he comes back to set up the millennium and, and build Zion up in an even greater way. But it says he will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayer. Now, that's what Jeremiah says, is that when we turn to him, that he will begin to answer our prayers. He won't despise them anymore. He'll turn his face back to us. This shall be written for the generation to come. It's for the future. And the people which shall be created shall praise the eternal. And he is going to create a new people. He's going to gather a remnant together and they will praise him. So this is a prophecy for now. It talks about in verse 21, to declare the name of the eternal in Zion and praise in Jerusalem when the people are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the eternal. So the first gathering of the church is going to be from all kingdoms of the earth around the world and Zion will be built. So this is a now prophecy. I've spoken quite a bit over the last few weeks and even months, I guess, about the timing of all this coming down. And God has a set time. Now, is it available or would God want us to know when that set time is at some point? I believe that is the case. If you go back to uh, Exodus 9, 10, 11, 12, uh, they were informed ahead of time by Moses that God was preparing to deliver them. And some of the things that he would do and how they would be delivered, and he even told them ahead of time in chapter 11 to go ahead and prepare, and maybe even start, spoiling the Egyptians. Now, I, I think that was just instruction for what they would do because the, the Egyptians, prior to all these plagues, were not going to start giving them their jewels. <laughs> uh, they, they weren't ready to even get rid of Israel until that night when all their firstborn died. And then I think they spoiled them as they left. It might be, it seems to indicate that there in chapter 11, that... Uh, Maybe they did some spoiling ahead. Maybe after some of those plagues, the Egyptians were beginning to say, you know, here, take this. Get your God to shut this stuff off. I don't know. It isn't completely clear. But God let them know is the point I want to make. That Moses had come, and Moses was going to deliver them, and they had the time frame. So uh, God does not do things without warning. And he's not doing this thing here at the end when the set time has come without a warning through his prophets. And that's why I think it has come clear here very recently that the 430 years of Ezekiel laying on his side, 430 days, but depicted as years, it says right there, has to do with this nation of Israel and how it will be destroyed at the end of 430 years. And he said there over and over, it has come, it has come, it is near. 
and it won't be the echoing of the mountains. So that time was up on July, I think it was 22nd of 2017. So he didn't say it would happen the same day. He said it is very near, it's not going to echo anymore. So here we are coming around to Passover a few months later. And I think even as Daniel could understand by the numbers the 70 years were up, we've been able to discern that the 70 years of Zechariah 1 has also ended. And at the end of that 70 years, the nation was to be destroyed and God's people were to be blessed. Uh, so that ended uh, possibly in uh, the fall of 2017, a little later than than the uh, Roanoke colony. So we're coming around to Passover from that, less than a year later. And then we have the major limiting factor in Isaiah 7, which talks about how the nation will fall before 65 years is done from a certain date, which I believe was 1954, or, yeah, 1954, when the Bilderbergers were instituted as a New World Order uh, promoting group that wanted this nation destroyed. So we have a limit on how far it can go in the future. So sometime in 2019, uh, the nation has to be destroyed before a baby born, I think, at Passover time would be able to say, Daddy and Mommy. So it does appear to me that we have reached that set time. Maybe I'm going out on a limb more than I normally do, but I think I understand it more than I normally have. And uh, maybe I'm wrong. We shall see. But this could be a very significant Passover coming up. The set time, it appears, has arrived. Now, with that background, let's do a little study today that ties in with it. But to think about Bible history and man from Adam on down until today, and how many really significant events, dramatic events, occurred on Feast of Trumpets down through history. And while you're at it, think about Pentecost. And while you're at it, I meant not Pentecost, I meant uh, Feast Day of Atonement. And also Feast of Tabernacles. Can you think of any major dramatic happenings on those festivals throughout man's history. I see blank looks. I came up with the same number. Zero. Now, let's consider the spring days. Uh, when you think of Passover, what do you think of? Some pretty dramatic events have occurred at various times on Passover. Exodus 12 when it was instituted, and the great deliverance there of the firstborn dying in Israel getting out crossing the Red Sea. Uh, you come down to Joshua, and they crossed the uh, Jordan on the 10th, and then they kept the Passover on Saturday night, the 14th. So, uh, great dramatic events. The Jordan River just piling up in heaps upriver occurred at Passover time. And then, of course, we come down to the greatest, most dramatic thing, and that was Christ dying 
uh, at Passover time. And we have one more that we'll get into. But let's go back and examine these just a little bit, uh, each one of them. In Exodus 12, well, I want to go back for a moment to Exodus 10. There's an important issue here that I think that we, we, I think we've addressed it some over the years, but we don't, we don't focus on it. But these, the plagues were going on, and Pharaoh's servant said to him, 10-7, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Eternal their God. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? What those ten plagues did was completely destroy the empire of Mitzrayim or Egypt. Sin uh, is pictured by Egypt, even in the end time prophecies. It talks about Egypt being destroyed and sin going away. And it's not talking about that little country in northern Africa. It's talking about the whole system of sin around the world that has got to go away. So here, you have two major elements occurring. The Passover season represented the destruction of sin in Exodus 12. And then it pictured the deliverance of God's people. (laughs) That through the Passover service itself and God bringing them out of there, extricating them miraculously and the very dramatic uh, event of the Red Sea opening up so that they could go through on dry land. So you have the Passover depicting two things, the destruction of unrighteousness and the beginning of righteousness. Now let's look at Joshua. You had people wandering in the desert who completely forgot what God had done at the Red Sea in getting them out of Mitzrayim and had been consigned to wander until their bodies dropped in the desert and only their children would go in. So the sin and the rebellion against God were very, very much a part of that first Passover in the Promised Land. That they had to depart from their sinful ways and the sinful, rebellious ways of their fathers and now go in and have a righteous uh, culture and society. So the Jordan River was the key to that. They were in the desert of sin, and then God backed the Jordan River up in the springtime when it was at flood stage and caused them to walk over on dry land. Then they were to begin the works of righteousness. And the first thing they did, once arriving there, was keep the Passover. In that year, it clearly says. Now, they marched around Jericho during the Days of Unleavened Bread. And that was the first depiction of putting sin out was having a pagan Gentile city, Jericho, destroyed. So, unleavened bread pictured the destruction of sin and death and heathenism 
as they went into the land. Now, God did destroy their enemies ahead of them to some degree, but they didn't follow through, and Israel never did come up to righteousness. And ultimately, the old covenant that he had made with them was broken by them, not by him, but by them, and it resulted in divorce. So we have here a story of of starts toward righteousness that so far both have ended in sin. As soon as they got across the Red Sea, they began to gripe and rebel. So having been delivered from sin, they went right back to it. Israel, having been baptized again, in that sense, by crossing Jordan, uh, almost immediately went right back into sin. So those two situations, dramatic as they were, and as much as we still know about them, read about them in the Bible, and sing them in the hymns, they're basically forgotten. And now we have a society again uh, that is steeped in sin uh, as deeply as they were in Noah's day. But before we get there, let's uh, consider Christ, who came and lived a perfect life. So he showed... <coughs> That sin can be conquered, that the world could be overcome, that human nature can be put down and God's righteousness can occur. So this time, before even creating the deliverance, he shows ahead of time that sin can be gotten rid of. Now, in a way, he did that in Egypt by destroying the Egyptian empire before they ever even left. Uh, but they didn't really understand what sin was, so maybe they didn't get the point. And their parents died before they went across the Jordan, so there is also a symbolism there to some degree that righteousness could occur once sin is gone. But Christ did it in a more dramatic fashion by living a perfect life all the years he had here, and showing that this can be done. Then comes the Passover, whereupon he died, showing the process whereby sin can be conquered. By God giving up his life, which was worth more than all our lives put together, and that this could occur. So we had a very, very dramatic Passover that year, in which he was taken at midnight, And the Son of God, His firstborn Son, was taken out to be killed and indeed died the next day. So the typology between Exodus 12 and Christ's suffering is the same. God's own firstborn. Now, here again we see the destruction of sin. Uh, through his living a perfect life and his giving of his blood so that our sins can be forgiven. So here's an upgrade from the last two dramatic Passovers that occurred in history. And he gives himself instead of the Egyptians or instead of the older rebels. He gave himself as the example of how it could be done. So here again we have destruction of sin and the deliverance of spiritual Israel. In each case where there's been a dramatic Passover, that has occurred. Both elements were always there. 
And these were done during the time of man, not in the future. The reason that trumpets, atonement, and feast of tabernacles have never had any dramatic happenings is because they are still all for the future. Now, we are experiencing and have been the elements of Passover in our lives. And they did from Exodus 12 on. And the same with Pentecost. Uh, we'll get to it in a moment. But there have been some dramatic happenings on Pentecost because it is for today. Now, I'll make one little exception and it has not yet occurred, and that is the Feast of Tabernacles. Because here in the end time, there's been, so far, no dramatic happenings on the Feast of Tabernacles in history. But here at the end, God says in Isaiah 51, He's going to restore things as Eden, and He's going to have a microcosm of protection for His church in Zion and Jerusalem, particularly in Zion after Jerusalem is defiled. But a microcosm of the millennium will occur in a dramatic fashion just before the real millennium gets here. So he will use the Feast of Tabernacles once as a dramatic happening for something that is coming shortly thereafter with the true millennium. So those things are yet future. How, were, how would you have a dramatic Feast of Trumpets? you know, or a feast of atonement because they picture Christ returning and the marriage of the Lamb and, of course, the millennium and the great white throne judgment are down the road. So we'll get a small taste of that here at the end. But Passover and Pentecost we're already dealing with. Uh, now let's talk about Pentecost a little bit here. <clears throat> the first dramatic Pentecost was at Mount Sinai. It can be shown technically that uh, they were there at Pentecost when the Ten Commandments were given. So, that was a very dramatic time. Moses was on the mountain with fire and thunder and lightning and the law of God was written on the tablets of stone. So, he was in that sense with God and in the Spirit of God, and dramatic things occurred. Now, when he came down off the mountain, there was a people down there who were not thinking of God, who were not reacting according to the Spirit of God. Not that Moses was uh, um, conceived of the Spirit at that time, but he was with Christ. <laughs> I mean, he was right there with the Spirit of God and righteousness. But the people down below were doing what? Debauchery. So at that point in time, there was one man who represented righteousness, who was Moses. And all the rest of Israel were in debauchery and sin. So it was pretty dramatic. Uh, I don't know whether... Uh, Caleb and Joshua were involved or not or whatever, but, but I'm making a general statement here. Moses represented God and God's law, and the rest of Israel essentially were in sin. 
even Aaron, the high priest, made the calf. So, even he was representing Satan by his actions. Now, without God's Spirit, nothing spiritually can be done. And I think that was showed right there, that Moses, with Christ, could act in a spiritual fashion. He could think in a spiritual way. He brought the law, and then the law was to be accepted by all those people, and they did adopt it, didn't they? They said, yes, we'll keep this covenant with you, and we'll obey you, and then they didn't. Uh, But that's the history. Somewhere that history has to change, doesn't it? Doesn't it have to get better than that? All right, let's fast forward to Acts 2. Here is the second occurrence in man's history where Pentecost was a dramatic thing. And I want to address this here because it's important to the story and where we are today. Says when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now they had had to wait fifty days from Passover until Pentecost came, and nothing happened during that fifty days. They just sat in Jerusalem, wondering what's going on here. They were told to tarry there, not to leave there, stay around, stick around, and then they had fifty days of nothingness. Nobody was preaching, nobody was being converted, nothing was occurring. The disciples themselves were not yet converted. Remember Christ had told Peter, when you are converted, feed my sheep. So at this point, they were not converted. They were disciples, they were followers, they believed in Christ, but they weren't saints yet. They weren't converted yet. So... Here comes the day of Pentecost, 50 days later. They were all in one place in one accord, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven. Now, let's pause a moment here. They were in one accord. They all agreed on why they were there, what they were doing. They agreed on the doctrines of Christ. They weren't, uh, there weren't uh, a congregation of half-rebels or anything of the kind, they were all with one accord, in agreement. And for something like this to occur, uh, that would have to be the case. Keep that in mind. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing and mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Kind of scary. We had that happen at uh, Passover up in Zion one year. We were just about to start the Passover service and actually had gotten into it a little bit. No, I think it was just it was just before. And I started reading some of the scripture that I was going to go into on that Passover, and suddenly we had No, no. Let me get the story straight. I read it and then Neil Roten was helping with the Passover that year, and I saw that in there and I thought, We've been doing this wrong. We were getting the order of the foot washing in the Passover backward. So I excused myself and him, uh, which I'd never done at Passover or seen done, 
And we went in the back room, and I explained to him what I just read and how I thought we were doing it backward. Now, I didn't have all the proof that came out in the article some years ago, but I focused there, and I think God just revealed at that moment that we were doing it backward. So I went out and changed it and says, we're going to do it the other way. We'll have the wine and bread, and then we'll have the foot washing, as we've come to see uh, Luke and the rest of the Bible concurs with. And right after that, just out of nowhere, there was a mighty rushing wind. I mean, it was almost scary. We were in a very strong concrete bunker, if you will. And it was blowing things around outside, and it was, it was a mighty uh, demonstration. And I think, and then it died out in just a little bit. It was like a tornado had gone over. And I think God was confirming that that change at that moment was correct. I think we all felt that at the time. And then we later proved, uh, without a doubt, that it was correct. So, these things can happen. Now, that wasn't on the category of this was by any means, but I think God was letting us know something. And there appeared to them cloven tongues like his fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, so God sent his Holy Spirit on that day, at that time, in a very mighty uh, presentation. And they began to speak in other languages. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. And when this was scattered about, the multitude came together and were confounded because they could hear in their own language the things that were being said. Uh, they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not these would speak Galileans, and how do we hear it in our own tongue? This is going to happen again with the two witnesses, I feel certain because they will be preaching all over the world to people of all languages. And if they speak English, which I think they will, uh, how are they going to be heard? <laughs> By all the different dialects, all the different languages of the world. And God will have to give a gift of tongues again for that to happen. So all these things are, are a setup for even more dramatic things that are going to happen in the near future. And then it names different peoples that were there. And they were all amazed, verse 13, and in doubt, saying, what, what's this all about? Some mocked and said they're full of wine. Well, if you're full of wine, you might be indistinguishable in what you're saying, but you're not going to be speaking in all these different languages with wine. You might, your own language might become gibberish to you or to others, but not other languages. But then Peter stood up with eleven and lifted his voice and said, These aren't drunk. It's only the third hour of the day. And this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God. Now, Joel thought that he was at the last days. And what he saw reminded him of Joel too, and what God says there. Now, we've I've gone over this in sermons before, but there are a few points I want to make here, having to do with now. 
I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons, your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall visit, see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. He goes on to say, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. Now, there were miracles that were done here. 3,000, 5,000 people converted as a result of the sermons. Healings left and right. The shadow of the apostles passing over people caused them to be healed. So it was a very dramatic Pentecost. But he quoted part of Joel that didn't happen. The first part of what he said there happened. Not exactly the way Joel puts it with the dreams and so on, but of the preaching and the, the wonders and healings occurred. But this day of the Lord stuff that we just read didn't happen. So obviously, Joel was not speaking of that time when Peter said this, but he was speaking of an end time when all of it would happen. Now, what happened there in Acts 2 was certainly a type of an even greater fulfillment to come later. And it in itself was pretty dramatic, wasn't it? With thousands and thousands hearing and understanding and healings occurring left and right. So it was a very important time. And there, God again separated uh, sin from righteousness. Uh, he gave his spirit to his people who were then conceived of that spirit on that day. And they were able to uh, live according to the spirit and walk according to the spirit thereafter, whereas they had not been before. <coughs> but the world was not converted. So we have two Pentecosts so far where there have been very, very dramatic occurrences in the past. Sinai and Acts 2. <laughs> Three with Passover, with uh, Exodus 12, Joshua, and Christ. Now let's <laughs> let's go back to the Book of Acts. I'm um, the Book of Acts. Where are you there? Book of Joel. Joel two. And let's notice where Peter began to quote. In Joel 2, you go on down, and he began in verse 28. In fact, he said pretty much in those words uh, what Joel says here. It shall come to pass afterward. After what? We'll explore that in just a minute. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy, dream dreams, see visions, and so on. And I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke, sun darkened, day of the Lord. Verse 32, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Eternal shall be delivered. 
For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall, shall be deliverance, as the Eternal has said, and in the remnant whom the Eternal shall call. Now, Peter did not quote all that. Now, there was a gathering, yes, <clears throat> that did occur on Acts 2. Uh, thousands began to be converted that very day, in the next few days. So, a gathering of people to be converted to do the work of the, first, the uh, early church began on Pentecost. Didn't begin on Passover, did it? No, that was Christ dying, Christ being resurrected, uh, putting sin out, making a difference between. Now, that was a great blessing, was it not? Yes, it was, and has been for us ever since. But now let's go back, because Peter didn't mention what came before that. Verse 21, uh, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Eternal will do great things. So here we have something introduced, saying that God is going to do great things. And let's see when. First of all, be not afraid, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree bears her fruit. The fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the eternal your God, for he has given you the former rain moderately, or uh, according to righteousness, as it says in my margin, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. <clears throat> Peter didn't quote that. He wasn't in the first month. He was in the third month. Pentecost. And the things that he read from verse 28 on down or what occurred on that Pentecost, except that it wasn't the final one and the day of the Lord coming. That's still ahead of us. So he didn't mention the blessings that are going to come in the first month. What happens in the first month? Passover. Now, we've already seen that God gave dramatic happenings three times in the past on Passover. Here is the fourth that is coming up. We are in the land today where we fear. We fear everything today. We're in a land where we fear terrorists. We fear nuclear weapons. We fear the food we eat. We fear the air we breathe. We fear the education we get. Uh, we fear the economy is going to collapse. Virtually everything in our lives it's something we fear. Now, something dramatic is going to happen that is going to change that. Now, it's not going to be for the whole nation, though. Because it's clear when the 430 is over, the 70 years is over, and before 65 are accomplished, Ephraim will be destroyed that it be not a nation. So the dramatic will have to do with two things, the destruction of sin 
our society will occur within 12 months. Not immediately, but within 12 months. And God will rain righteousness down and begin to bless His people where before He's turned His face away and would not answer, which we read in Psalm 102, before the set time is come. But once the set time comes, that changes. So it is a small area that Joel is talking about. Peter had to do with a small area, one building in Jerusalem with 120 people or so. Here you have the nation about to be destroyed, and we'll read that a little later, but you have God's people being blessed. At the end of the 70, there in Zechariah 1 and 2, it shows that people flee and gather, and then they are blessed in the end time. So, here he's talking about giving all kinds of blessings, former and latter rain. The floor shall be full of wheat, and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten, the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. So these last years since the church came apart, really from 86 on, all those years are going to be made up to us immediately. And God is going to restore every spiritual blessing, and I think physical blessing as well, uh, as time goes on here in this end time. And notice verse 27. <clears throat> well, 26, And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Eternal your God, that has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be ashamed. Now, we were ashamed back in the 50s and 60s and represented ourselves as uh, representing Ambassador College instead of the church. We were afraid of persecution, and we were afraid of mocking and whatever, so we kind of tried to hide behind the college. <coughs> and lately we've been ashamed because that which have been proclaimed as the work of God the first time in 1900 years have been destroyed. And that's kind of shameful. And, and you hate to even bring up, they said, well, what church are you? Well, I was, I was with Herbert Armstrong, the worldwide church of God that just got destroyed. That doesn't sound too good. So we've gone through some shame. And right now, right here, we've got people mocking us and laughing at us. We shall see. Never be ashamed. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the eternal your God, and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. Says it twice. Now he tells us in Zechariah 1 and 2 that he will dwell with us. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us. Says the same thing in Isaiah 7 and 8, God with us. Thy land, Emmanuel, uses the word there, translated. But notice the words here. He says, I have done wondrous things. What will happen on this last, or this next dramatic Passover? There's one schedule to come yet. God is going to do wondrous things. 
is going to restore dignity and godliness and reputation. I won't say pride, because we don't want that. But he is going to restore good feeling. He's going to restore his contact with us, so that when we pray, he will answer. That'll be a nice upgrade, won't it? You can pray and know you're going to be heard and answered. That all happens Passover time. Which Passover time? Well, watch this one about a month ahead of us. Because I can't see any other one that fits the set time of these prophecies of the 430, the 70, and the 65. I can't find any way around it. It can't be later, or it's an echoing again of the hills. And it's too late for it to be last year, because it's already come and gone. And the destruction of this nature has, uh, this nation has to occur uh, according to the 430 and the 70, and not past that 65 years. So that destruction is just ahead of us. I see no way around that. Therefore, this Passover is the only one in, in there that can happen before that occurs. Right? By a process of elimination, there's only one Passover between now and the time this nation is destroyed. That's coming up in a month. You haven't heard of anything dramatic happening this weekend yet, have you? I think they're doing the wrong month. I think it's next month. Now, Daniel can understand by numbers. Can we understand by numbers? I think that precedent is set. Did Christ tell the disciples, Harry till Pentecost? Did they know something was coming at Pentecost? Yeah, I had to have, because they were to sit there until something was going to happen at Pentecost. So I don't think, we're not talking here, I know the thing comes to your mind, you won't know the day or the hour. That's not even talking about this at all. This is talking about what is about to happen to our nation and what is about to happen to the church. And God will not do it until he shows it. And all three of the major prophets show it. We just didn't put it together until now. Why? Because you don't need to know 5, 10, 15, 20 years before lest you get discouraged. Unless you put it in neutral and just idle along like we were doing in Worldwide anyway. You see the dynamics of what occurred there? <clears throat> they began to tell us back in the 60s that the tribulation would come in 72 and Christ would return in 75. We had a booklet, 1975 in Prophecy. And, but it was still a long way away. And people anticipated and they tried, but it was wrong. It didn't happen. And then, since it didn't happen, their hopes were dashed, and we went into a spiritual morass, and eventually the church all broke up. Some said, well, it's going to be at 82. Well, that didn't happen either. So then we kept going through and getting more and more Laodicea, and then finally God said, I'm blowing you apart. Well, see, God had not established 1972 and 75 and 82. God didn't do that. 
people who read some things thought that. And they were using the 19-year time cycles, which actually do not exist, to prove it. And it didn't work. Now, God has put it in the Word, but none of us understood it until just recently. And I've gone over it and over it, and I can't find a hole in it. If there's a hole in it, I haven't discovered it yet. It's just like asking you at the beginning, what times did you see anything dramatic happen at Trumpets, Atonement, or Feast? Nothing. You couldn't find anything, because there wasn't anything. So with this, we didn't find it because we didn't understand the end-time events and didn't need to. Now we're on the cusp of it occurring, and now we need to know. Why do we need to know? Just because we can be smarter than anybody else in the world? No. It doesn't have anything to do with our level of righteousness. Well, in a way it does. We need to know ahead of time so we can get ready for it. If it's that close, we'd better get ready for it. And that is exactly what Daniel did. When he figured out the numbers from reading Jeremiah, it scared him. And he immediately began to fast and to pray. And the prayer he gave there in Daniel 9 was having to do with his sin and the sin of Israel and how they had not really served God the way they ought to. And therefore, he was afraid of God. So he immediately began to get as close to God as he possibly could because he knew that the 70 years were over, Babylon had just been destroyed, and the people of God were supposed to go and build the temple and the wall of Jerusalem. And he wrote about it. Even in that same chapter, he wrote about it. So he knew a huge change was coming and that the time had arrived. Now, is that any different from us knowing that some huge changes are coming and that the time has arrived and therefore we need to be talking to God about our sins and fasting and getting as close to God as we can so that we be accounted worthy to be a part of what is laid out here for us. The set time has come. Ezekiel said it over and over. It has come, it has come, it has come, it has come. It is almost here, or it is near. And it wouldn't be echoing anymore. You won't be setting another date in the future. The set time has arrived. Psalm 102 says there's a set time. And I think God has showed it to us. So we can be ready and be part of it and be here when the gathering does start to come. There has to be somebody available. And we're already in the right spot, and now we understand the timing, I do believe. So he says it's going to be that he will do wondrous things. So no more shame, no more saying, yeah, I'm part of, I was part of Worldwide. Now you can say, I am part of what God is doing in Zion the wonders of Almighty God. Nothing we do, but He does. He will do wonders. And He tells us, don't fear. 
He uses the same language in Zephaniah and Haggai and other places where he talks about the end-time remnant coming together. says, fear not, O land. Now, he doesn't say that to the rest of the nation, does he? He tells them to fear because the world's coming down on you. So, these aren't to fear, but these are. Now, which group do you want to be in? So, that's in the first month. That's around Passover time. Right? First month, all these blessings and wonders are going to occur. Now, go down to verse 20. uh, And he will show us that he's God and come and dwell with us. Is this the time, and Malachi says, when he will suddenly come to his temple and abide with them and dwell with them? As Zechariah 1 and 2 show, I believe it is. Now, in verse 28, it says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I'll pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Now, afterward would have to be Pentecost. I've always thought that, but I never quite put it together with Peter saying, This is that time spoken of by Joel beginning in verse 28. So Peter was saying that part of Joel has to do with Pentecost. He did not quote that which is above it, which had to do with Passover. So certain things will occur at Passover time, and then afterward at Pentecost time, according to Peter's testimony, the rest of this will happen. He'll show wonders in the heavens and earth. Because we're right upon the great and terrible day of the Lord is just ahead of us. So he's going to start it by pouring out his spirit on our daughters, our sons, our handmaids, and so on. And he'll show wonders. Now, wonders in the heavens have to do with the day of the Lord, which is still just a little ways away. But... What did God do on Pentecost in Acts 2? He didn't do the wonders in the heavens. Just the fire that came in the room was all. But he did gather people for the New Testament church. And he did create miracles of healings, just left and right. And we've read all the scriptures which show that here in the end time, Isaiah 35, different places, that he'll make the desert blossom as a rose, be productive like the first part of this, and that he will make the lame walk, the deaf hear, and the blind to see, and that we'll be renewed as eagles and have deer legs. Those we've read over and over. But that's what he did on Pentecost in Acts 2. Did he not? The crippled, the lame, the blind, the deaf were healed. Just boom, just like that. Now, reading on down in verse 32, we read it, but I want to make a point here. It shall come to pass that whosoever shall call out the name of the Eternal shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, right here, shall be deliverance, as the Eternal has said, and in the remnant whom the Eternal shall call. Peter didn't read that part. The remnant has to do with the end time, the two witnesses, the gathering of the people to build a temple and to build Jerusalem, as Daniel said, and as Christ said in Matthew 24. 
So I had thought maybe the gathering would start at Passover, but I'm beginning to change my thinking on that. From what Joel is saying here, it appears that he is going to do some great wonders and some blessings will come and we'll know that Christ is among us and we'll know that he is God and spiritual blessings, maybe physical, will start here as well. And then we have to wait till Pentecost before the real miracles of healing and the real miracles of gathering begin to occur. At the gathering of the remnant, it says. And I think that's referring to Pentecost here, not to Passover. So Passover and Pentecost have both had very dramatic happenings in the history of mankind. And we're going to have one more very dramatic happening on both Passover and Pentecost here at the end. Because Peter was wrong about that being the last days. He was right about what God was doing at that point, but it wasn't as dramatic and not as big as it will be here in the end. There people gathered around who were in Jerusalem. Here people are going to gather from all over the world, from all four corners. Uh, everyone who comes will be healed. And he even shows us that there will be Edenic conditions there in Isaiah 51 and other places, and he'll be a wall of fire around us. So we're not to fear. Fear not, O land. Fear not, we might say, O promised land. But the rest of you better fear because the Assyrian is coming. Now, let's go back to Joel 1. <clears throat> I've been kind of leading up to this, uh, showing what is about to happen, but let's understand the context here a little bit. The word of the Eternal came to Joel, and he said, Hear this, you old men, and give ear all inhabitants of the land. That's not all we got left, old men, but a few other inhabitants. Has this been in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. And then from generation to generation. Then he goes through and shows that there has been great famine. Now, Amos 8 says that there will be a famine in the land, not of food, but a famine of the Word. And this applies to the church here. It also applies to the nation as a whole in the near future, uh, less than a year from today when the palmer worm and the locust and all the armies are going to go through this land and destroy it. I think I can safely say that now, because we've seen the timing, and it has to happen, that this nation go down within 12 months from this Passover. And maybe even less, because a child can say daddy and mommy sometimes at 11 months, and it has to happen before they can say that. So we're looking at 8, 9, 10 months before is... Uh, you know, it's not specific. And God didn't make it that specific. The United States will be attacked and destroyed on November 13th. You know, he, he didn't do that. But he gave us the time frame and, and left it a, a little bit open end, but with a 12-month limit. And that's pushing it to 12 months. So, look at what's happened with the church. Palmerworth has eaten, the locust has eaten, and the caterpillar eats. 
you spiritual drunkards weep and howl because of the new wine that's cut off from your mouth. We no longer have the good teaching uh, throughout the church that we did have. And the nation has come up upon my land strong and without number like a lion. Wasn't the church pretty well devoured by people like that? He's laid my vineyard waste and barked my fig tree. Uh, he's made it clean bare. If you go back to Haggai, it says, has the fig tree and the, the vine and the pomegranate, I think, or four things it says there, have they produced? No. Not so far. Nothing's happened. But here it says, that which we did have on those trees is gone. The good teaching, good doctrine, um, able to work and do a work. <clears throat> Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. Her husband's died. She doesn't have one anymore, so she's mourning. The meal offering, the drink offering cut off from the house of the eternal, the priests, the Lord's ministers mourn. The ministers have gotten together over the last 20, 30 years and mourned and uh, wept, wept about how bad things are and how they can't accomplish anything, and they get in meetings and do that. been going on. Be you ashamed, O husbandman. You, you plant, nothing happens. Broadcast, magazines, nothing happens. The vines dried up, fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, apple. All the trees of the field are withered. Joy is withered away from the sons of men. What has happened to our church? We recently read that in the book of Lamentations. So what does he say? Gird yourselves and lament, you priests, howl, you ministers of the altar, Come lie all night in sackcloth, you ministers of my God. So this is talking about within the church. The conditions would be so bad that the ministers needed to do this. For the meal offering and the drink offering is withheld from the house of your God. God's not blessing the church. Then what does he say? Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Eternal, your God, and cry to the Eternal. What did Daniel do when he saw by numbers that it was upon him? He called on God, fasted, and prayed. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It's right near. It's, it's not 20, 30, 40, 50 years off now. It's at, it's at hand. And as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Is not the meal cut off before our eyes? He says it again. Joy and gladness from the house of God. The seed is rotten under their clods. You plant something and you can't produce anything. It goes on, beast groaning. Uh, verse 19, O eternal, to you will I cry, for the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the churches that splintered off from worldwide basically uh, are still splintering and still losing people and people are dying and it's getting smaller and smaller as time goes on. It's not growing anywhere. Not at all. Maybe one group will say something and maybe it'll attract a bunch of people that will come to that one, but they just came out of another one to go there and then they eventually go out the back door there because what they said was happening there didn't happen. That's what we got going on right now. Now, chapter 2 is the introduction to what we've just read in the last part of the chapter. Now, what we're about to read 
has occurred off and on in the history of the Church of God. And it happened about 22 years ago in Church of the Great God when I was there and gave that sermon on on uh, uh, Joel Peter and the end time church. A fast was called in because I read some of these scriptures and they, it seemed to be that it was near. Well, it wasn't. It was 22 years ago. Now, if we understand the set time and we understand that it's here, that it's upon us, then this becomes more important than it's ever been before. Because this is instruction leading up to the blessings we just read about on Passover and Pentecost, okay? Blow the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the eternal comes. It is near at hand. Not here, but it's near. Once these things start happening that we read at the end of Joel, the day of the Lord is only within five, six, seven years away. I, I could look at my chart I diagram to show you exactly, but I, it's uh, by 2026 and 2027 with the seven last plagues. So that's only uh, eight, nine years away. And some of it starts even before then. So it's near. A day of darkness, gloominess, a day of clouds, thick darkness, which Peter uh, read toward the end of the chapter. A fire devours before them, a flame behind, the land is as the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them like a desolate wilderness, and nothing shall escape. So when this country is overrun, it's going to be overrun completely. Uh, they have the appearance of horses and horsemen and chariots. Uh, before their face, verse 6, the people are much pained, and all faces shall gather blackness. That's famine. <coughs> Ezekiel says at the end of the 430 years, a third will be taken and die in famine and pestilence, a third by the sword, a third go into captivity and be chased by the sword. And there's no break in, con in the continuity. It's the end of the 430 that it is very near. Within, uh, we're, we're still within the year of that having occurred at Roanoke and, and the end of it in July of 17. Same with the 70. So it's here. I do believe. Uh, Verse 9, they'll run to and fro in the city and run upon the wall, climb on the houses, enter in at the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble. Sun and the moon are dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. This is going to be a pretty dramatic event, and maybe some of the flames and the smoke are going to even cover the sky. This isn't day of the Lord. This is the destruction of our nation. <clears throat> and the Eternal shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? So it may be that God is saying here that even the beginnings of the day of the Lord occur when this nation is destroyed. And it gets more and more dramatic as it goes on to the sun not giving her light and the moon and so on during the specific year that is the day of the Lord that Matthew 24 talks about. The detail of that isn't important here today. Let's go to chapter verse 12. Therefore also now, says the Eternal, turn you even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. Now that's exactly the scenario that Jeremiah gives 
when you read Jeremiah 25, 29, and 31, that just before, just at the end of the 70 years, the destruction of our nation is going to come, and that a few people will be delivered to go back to Jerusalem to build the temple. That's exactly where we are today, about ready to go build the temple in Jerusalem. And that 70 years is brought out in Zechariah 1 as having to do with the end-time church, the two witnesses, and the remnant. And there, Jeremiah says, Turn to God with all your heart, and he will answer you. Now, he says, Here we'll know he's God, and he will answer us, when it's talking about Passover here at the end of the chapter, right? So this ties in very directly with Jeremiah, and with Ezekiel, and with Daniel, and Zechariah. So he says, when this time comes, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments, and turn to the eternal your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and relents him of the evil. So he says, just before what occurs in the end of this chapter we had better get as close to God as we possibly can so that we can be included in these blessings that are going to come. Just as Daniel did. He set us the example. Who knows if he will return and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meal offering and a drink offering to the eternal your God. So he said, blow the trumpet in Zion in verse 1. He said, turn to God in verse 12. And here he says, blow the trumpet in verse 15. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. In other words, this is the only important thing going. If you're about to get married... uh, Is this the time to be thinking about that? Even though the engagement is there and the marriage is near? No, God is about to visit destruction on our entire nation. He is about to bless His people. What else can you be thinking about? That's what He says. Gather the people together. Let's let's talk seriously about this. All right, we're here. We're gathered. Let's talk seriously about this. Passover is a month away. And it does appear that this Passover is the time that Joel is talking about. I can't... I've tried to argue with myself on that, but I look at those numbers, and they're there. I can't deny them. And so far, I've not been able to find a way around them. <laughs> you know, I've tried. i got to believe it. So I think we're finally at the time that this is a specific prophecy for right now. Take this seriously, God says. Now, does this say that these things are about to happen and that you know about it and therefore you need to do something about it? Is that what it's saying? It's saying it's coming. It's here. It's almost there. It's nigh. It's right at the door. Do something about it. Now, how does that fit with there's a set time in the 430 and the 70 and the 65? 
It means that you know enough ahead of time to do something about it. That's the only reason God made those prophecies understandable to us now. Is because it's time to do something about it because it's right at the door. Maybe only a month away. Take it seriously. Let the priests, the ministers of the eternal, weep between the porch and the altar. And let them say, spare your people, O eternal. There is destruction coming on this nation that is incredible. By the time it's all over, less than 10% of Americans walking the earth today will be alive. That's within eight years from now. They'll make it nine with the seven last plagues. But Israel is going to be basically decimated way before that. We're the first to go. The beast and the false prophet destroy the horror. Ephraim, America. Well, this isn't far off. Within 12 months, I believe. That's serious. Spare your people, O Eternal. Now, so far, he's not been answering our prayers much. He's not been helping us much. He's had his face turned away from us. We want his face turned back to us. We want him to smile on us and answer our prayers. This is serious business. I'm tired of it the way it's been. Aren't you tired of it? I'm sick of it. I don't like it. It's been awful. Church of God or no church of God. This has been awful the last 20, 30 years. It's tiresome. I'm tired of it. And I want to be delivered out of it. <clears throat> don't you? Spare your people, O Eternal, and give not your heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? That's repeated several times in the prophecies. Where is their God? Why isn't He helping them? People look at Worldwide Church of God and say, Where is their God? They said they were the only true church on earth. Where is their God? They're being splintered. We're ashamed. It's been awful. God says He's going to fix it. Says then, verse 18, will the eternal be jealous for his land and pity his people. Then, when's then? When the time, the set time has come, and we blow a trumpet of warning and say, let's get serious and fast and pray, then will the eternal be jealous for his land and pity his people. We went through verses 18 through I mean, 16, 15, 16, 17, in Church of the Great God 22 years ago. Nothing happened. We fasted. We prayed. Nothing happened. Why? The set time hadn't come. It was still at least 22 years away. 23, maybe. So he says, if you do it at the right time, just before the destruction of the nation occurs... Then will Eternal be jealous and pity his people. Then will he truly answer. Yes, Eternal will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and you shall be satisfied therewith, and I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. Now, he's telling them this ahead of what happens from verse 23 on down in this chapter. In other words, you know about it ahead of time in order to repent 
and be ready. That's the reason God has let us know that it is close, it is at the door, so that we can get ourselves ready. And then he says, I will bless you once you get yourself ready. And we've got to know ahead of the destruction of the nation and ahead of the blessing of God's people to get ourselves ready. Verse 20, But I will remove far off from you the northern army. He's not talking about the country here. The northern army is going to destroy this country. There's a plethora of passages that show that. He's talking to the church here. I'll remove from you the northern army and will drive him into a land barren and desolate with his face toward the east sea and his rear end toward the utmost sea. And his stink shall come up and his ill savor shall come up because he has done great things. So, what does it say in Micah? That we'll send out seven, even eight principal men and they'll send the northern army and the Assyrian packing. Seeing the same thing here. God's going to take care of it, and they won't come near us if we have gotten ourselves spiritually ready. So when this destruction hits this land within 12 months, we will be delivered out of it. We don't have to worry about the northern army. Isn't that what it says in Isaiah 7 and 8 when he gives that 65-year prophecy? But I will take care of the Assyrian. He'll pass through your land, O Emmanuel, but he won't hurt my people. Don't fear the Confederacy or the New World Order. It all fits together right here. And then it picks up where we started. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Eternal will do great things. That was a great thing when Gideon and his 300 men took their lamps out and yelled and all the Assyrians jumped up and killed each other. That was a pretty great thing. Here he says the same thing's going to happen. His stink will rise up. Whether it'll be 300 people with uh, lamps is not the point. Maybe seven or eight men, according to Micah. But the same, the same thing will happen. The Assyrian army is going to have nothing to do with God's people. They will be run off, and their stink will follow them. So don't be afraid, because God is going to bless you, and you can rejoice and he'll give you the, the former and the latter rains in the first month, Passover. And then afterward, Pentecost, comes dreams and wonders and healings and all the things that happen at Acts 2. See, now we can combine Joel 2 with Acts 2 to produce what will happen this time. We can combine those two happenings and say, even greater things than either one of those are about to happen. And I think it is at the door. So what do we need to do? We need to get ourselves ready. And I think we should do exactly what Joel says here. So I'm going to call a fast for next Sabbath. Uh, this, is, this may be less than a month away. So he says, fast and weep and mourn and draw near to God. And we've done it prematurely in the past. It's been done here, there, and everywhere through the church when people would read that and get excited. But they didn't know the timing. And I think we do now. So if the timing is right, and that's what God says to do when the time is right, then I think we better do it. So next week, we'll fast and we'll pray. And we'll do a lot of praying and studying and thinking between now and Passover 
because that's what Daniel did. And that's what he says to do in Joel, to get ourselves as ready as we can, and then maybe God will account us worthy to be a part of the blessing instead of the destruction.